Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is an audiobook producer and director that you may not have heard of, but he's probably been in the audiobook industry longer than you have. He may have even started before you were born. He's produced and directed audiobooks at Penguin Random House, Hachette, Audible, Harper, and others. And you just may have heard of some of the authors whose works he's directed. Authors like Stephen King, Margaret Atwood, J.K. Rowling, and Louis L'Amour. David Rapkin, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Rich, it's my pleasure to join you. I am so happy that uh, that Stephanie uh, Chicatello recently mentioned your name to me, and we had a brief discussion. I said, oh, he sounds like a, a great person to have into the speakeasy talk about audiobooks over drinks. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time. It's my pleasure. All right. Well, this being a speakeasy, David, what are you drinking tonight? Well, normally I would be indulging in uh, one of my favorites, the double entendre, which is Two parts Myers rum, Campari, tonic, and lime. However, for this special occasion, I've concocted one of my most frequent drinks, which is the Aqua Libre. One part oxygen to two parts hydrogen. <laughs> um, I tried helium at uh, one point, but the side effects worked against my <laughs> director, so um, I'm staying with the uh, gases I'm familiar with. No doubt. I understand. Uh, Aqua Libre. I like that one. Um, now, tell me again, the double entendre. That is actually a drink I have not heard of, and I might just have to make myself one here in the speakeasy at some point. It was uh, my well, I, would, I would instruct you to use, um, as, uh, you, uh, as you control the heaviness of your hand, uh, Myers rum, um, Campari, uh, has a lovely bitter taste to it. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Along with its sweetness, a uh, little bit of lime and some Campari and tonic. Uh, tonic is, I think, probably the bitter counterpart to this drink, which would uh, make it a perfect summer refresher just for a day like this where it's hot and steamy outside. And yeah comfortable inside yeah here too as well our, our monsoon started a bit earlier than typical this year um traditionally it's it's supposedly june 15th through september 15th out here in tucson but really it doesn't normally get started until around july 4th but this year it really did get going fairly early so it's a little bit muggy out there today and uh, having one of those refreshing drinks is nice sounds kind of like a um like a Negroni, but with a tonic. I don't know. I, I will definitely have to try that. That sounds very interesting. And uh, the lime, I know that lime goes well with Campari. So, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll give that a shot. Well, good. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Um, tonight, though, I am having something that I found not too long ago, although it's been around for a long time, a tuxedo number two, which is a, a kind of a martini riff. I don't remember now whether it predates the martini or if it came after in any case uh instead of dry vermouth it it takes uh blanc vermouth and you also add quite a few dashes of orange bitters and just a little bit of maraschino liqueur so it's a little bit sweeter than a typical martini but it is kind of one of those boozy drinks that is primarily uh the spirit which in this case 
I used a London dry. Typically, the the classic recipe actually calls for an old tom, but I rarely have old tom on hand because I'm not a not a huge fan of it. And uh, and so I just went with you know my my typical Tanqueray London dry, which is always on hand. And uh, it's it's a nice change from the typical martini, which is a, a common drink here in the speakeasy. But uh, but but I like it. It's it's nice. Sounds very refreshing and something I might try myself. Yeah, tuxedo number two. Give it a shot. Uh, Liquor.com has a has a recipe for it. I'm sure you can find it elsewhere as well. Difford's usually has uh, a recipe for just about any any kind of a drink you can come up with. So uh, it might be there as well. But uh, in any case, uh, David, thank you so much for joining me. Cheers. Cheers indeed. Here's to you. All right. Well, uh, so David, where are you right now? I'm sitting in uh, my studio, actually. It's mostly a dining room, but it's got a desk in it in which I've compacted the computers that I use to do my work. So I'm in the dining room of our Upper West Side apartment. Got it. So you're you're in Manhattan. Are you from there originally? Yes, I was born in New York City and raised entirely in this part of the world. Um, I have uh, experience in New York very happily as a folk singer around Washington Square. I play the five-string banjo, at least used to. Uh, oh, my gosh, no uh, kidding. Oh, I hung around Washington Square listening to uh, the likes of Marshall Brickman and Eric Weisberg and we had a strange experience once where there was in the 1960s and 70s, um, many Upper West Side kids who in scruffy jeans and uh, jean jackets would make their way hard traveling down to the lower uh, parts of Manhattan on the number one train and uh, would sing Woody Guthrie songs and uh, stand around the fountain and uh, form little groups. Uh, what fantastic. I noticed was, what I noticed once was a nudge from a friend. And the French point, a friend pointed out to me an old man sitting in a wheelchair with a blanket on his, uh, over his shoulders, uh, smoking cigarettes one after another. I found out that in, in fact was Woody Guthrie himself. Holy cow. The wow. kids, the kids uh, many generations behind him, uh, having no awareness whatsoever that that was Woody Guthrie himself sitting there uh, listening to his songs still in life as they were uh, played by the kids around Washington Square. Uh, as I Fantastic. mentioned, yes, it was an, an, an incredible experience. And it was during the 1960s. So there was that air of uh, anything is possible. Yeah. And, uh, no doubt. Um, that that's just fantastic. We we could probably have a whole a whole hour discussion on just the banjo because I actually bought my first banjo about I think it was about eight years ago. And off and on, I have started learning how to play it and then stopped and then started again and then stopped. And so we could probably have a whole conversation just about that. But I'm sure that my listeners would not be quite as interested about that as they are your uh, your work in the audiobook world. But that is, what a fantastic story getting getting to meet. Uh, or did you actually meet him or did you just find out later? I was taken to see him. He was insensible in a way and uh, was entranced by the sound of children singing his songs so that the life of the uh, 
music itself uh, had an unbroken thread of continuity. And I think that pleased him tremendously. He was affected by a hereditary disease, Huntington's chorea, which uh, prevented him from speaking and moving normally. Yeah. But uh, that affliction uh, sort of made him fade into the background. But for those among us who knew who he was, the reverence that we felt was deep as possibly we we could feel it no doubt that's that's fantastic so so you uh were born and raised in manhattan and you're still there now have, have you stayed there the whole time or did you venture out at some point and come back um well um i was uh, at uh, columbia university studying when i received a phone call and the phone call brought me out to california it turns out that uh, at that time in California, in the mm, early to mid-1960s, there weren't a lot of five-string banjo players. There was one uh, five-string banjo player, a, a fine musician, somebody named, I think, um, Ry Cooter or something like that. <laughs> but Mr. Cooter was not that interested in uh, recording or playing in public at the time. Uh, so I went to California and uh, joined a group called the Good Time Singers. And we appeared on NBC uh, weekly uh, with uh, Andy Williams on the Andy Williams show. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's one of the one of the old standard uh, variety shows from that era. Absolutely. I remember a, a St. Patrick's Day uh, a festival program in which I get uh, thrown through a... a in a Donegal brawl, uh, plate glass window, which of course, as we all know, is made of uh, sugar. Sugar, yeah. But with sound effects, <laughs> it made it sound quite traumatic as I was tossed onto the mattresses behind the scrim. No doubt. How how much fun was that? Good grief! Uh, for a moment, brief in time, I even had at the parking lot my own name on my own parking space. <laughs> part of the ephemera that makes up life <laughs> yeah yeah those those moments in time sometimes they last uh just a second sometimes a, a year or two but uh it's it's great being able to think back on stuff like that uh yeah, so then but then you made it back you made your way back to uh to the east coast um i did uh i returned to school actually uh um i studied uh prehistoric archaeology i was fascinated by it Oh, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I participated in the work-study program at WBAI, which is a listener-sponsored radio station back then in the 1960s, uh, part of the Pacifica Group. And uh, there I started as a recording engineer, but uh, moved through the process with uh, radio drama as really the central part of my concentration, as well as recording uh, the uh, reviews of uh, newspapers, and um, the, there was some fine uh, reviewers of film that Andrew Saris was one of them. Anne Rand did a weekly uh, uh, commentary program in which she would come in and, in her thick Russian accent, talk about uh, the reasonableness of her philosophy. Wow, uh, I said, uh, that, that, that would be an interesting talk. <laughs> she she was a, a, a very small woman with a very powerful aura. She was a really quite a, a wonderful presence. No we doubt. had a little group of uh, 
performers. Uh, John Lithgow was among them at the time. This was before he became the famous John Lithgow and was part of our group that would uh, create, uh, I would say, little programs of, of radio drama, mostly humorous, but uh, for the most part, uh, totally ridiculous. Mm-hmm. The radio station itself gave us a free hand and we used it uh, to its fullest extent. That's great. Now, was this still in the 60s or was this in the 70s or later? This was in the 60s. In, uh, still the in the 60s. 60s. So, so radio drama back then was still kind kind of a big thing. I know that the, the heyday was probably before that, but um, I, I still remember in the early 70s listening to the CBS Radio Mystery Hour um, in the evenings. I think it was once a week, maybe maybe more than that, but um, it was still going on then. So in the 60s, there was still definitely still an audience for that. Well, we had kind of redefined the audience in the sense of content. Uh, Dr. Strange, master of the mystic arts, was one of our favorite characters. And we had a long series of programs in uh, a a series called The Radio, in which we would dramatize uh, short stories, as well as uh, comic books, and uh, with the use of live sound effects and uh, even on-location recording, as well as uh, recorded. We had a large library of uh, of recording uh, recorded sound effects that uh, we used uh, to a great extent and uh, created a a large body of uh, radio drama. That's great. Uh, And and so... It, it sounds like you were kind of, um, was it a, a very collaborative group where you would all kind of, you know, take on different aspects? And it wasn't just the performance, it was the creation. The collaboration came in with uh, Charles Potter, who was our uh, adapter and writer, uh, with a collection of fine actors who uh, varied from group to group. Um, I was the recording engineer, and so I was responsible for the placement of the mics and the editing. We used a quarter-inch tape at the time, mm, as yeah. well as <laughs> uh, the Ampex 300 machines that we used for mixing, these large uh, washing machine-style uh, uh, mechanisms that uh, are now part of, uh, of recording history. Yeah. Uh, the things were corporeal, as they have now ceased to be in yeah. the world of sound. Yeah, so so many changes in that. Now you can do everything. Everything is in the palm of your hand. Uh, it's kind of amazing, but I, I love thinking back on those days. I actually did a little bit of recording on a reel-to-reel when I was in college, but uh, I've, I've heard lots of stories over the years about the engineering back then and the razor blades and everything else that you had to do. Well, the, um, the evolution really begins with the portability of audio with the introduction of the so-called Norelco cassette, which we know uh, or may remember now as cassettes themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was an entirely analog phenomenon. As the transition from analog to digital took place, the compact disc, which was still a an item you could hold in your hand and touch, uh, was a transitional form from the analog to the digital world. The CD, of course, now... Uh, supplanted by digital downloads, which are entirely incorporeal. Yeah. You can't, you can't put them in your pocket. You can't pick them off a shelf. It's, um, yeah, that going going from the physical to the non-physical media that was a big challenge for some of us, including me. Um, 
and I I still uh, kind of resist it every once in a while, but I I completely understand that the the days are numbered. <laughs> well, we felt that the change from razor blades to computers was one that opened up vistas for us that were unavailable with uh, the use of uh, razor blades and splicing blocks and yeah, splicing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's that's fantastic. That sounds like a, a great experience. So that was your your introduction into uh, audio engineering. Um, where'd you go from there? What happened next? Um, we moved from uh, WBAI um, into the I got a call one day uh, and uh, someone said to me, uh, you know, I have a friend in publishing who uh, wonders whether it's possible to take a book and make a cassette of it. So I went down to the offices of a publishing company and had a, a wonderful conversation with a, uh, a woman named Jenny Frost. And we decided that, in fact, we would try to see if it was a viable idea to make the transition from print to speech and develop the idea of spoken word. Because until the portability of cassettes, the only way in which you could listen to spoken word was on a record. And that, of course, is an extremely delicate thing. And you couldn't schlep it to the beach. You couldn't put it in your pocket. And you certainly uh, had to have it uh, in a uh, set of circumstances that required uh, even table and so forth. And yeah. The cassette opened up the uh, possibilities for us. Once uh, the movement towards uh, digital occurred, the uh, lines began to blur and uh, the possibilities opened up enormously for the idea, for instance, that uh, you could have a thousand songs in your pocket at once. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you could have uh, any number of audiobooks, uh, not yet in existence, but radio dramas, all within a small device that could fit in your pocket. Yeah, um, was, I, I think back on the days, but on the, the days before that happened and, you know, think, thinking back to when I was in college about the possibility of, of doing that, I'm, I'm sure I would have thought about it and I don't, I don't remember ever thinking about it, but I'm sure I would have thought about having a little device in your pocket that can play all the music that you could possibly own, uh, with no problem whatsoever. And I would have kind of thought, yeah, I'll bet that's possible. Yeah. Not in my lifetime. So uh, th things have definitely changed. <laughs> uh, well, uh, one thing that we were very glad to see go was the uh, single-sided razor blade that was the workhorse of editing. So all of us uh, were very pleased to see the uh, uh, loss of the edit block, the yeah. uh, razor blade, and the splicing tape. Those yeah. things uh, uh, have only nostalgic value now, but nobody would wish for those any more than anyone would uh, like to stop word processing and go back to writing in longhand. Yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of fun to use something like a typewriter just for nostalgia purposes, but on an everyday basis, yeah, forget that. <laughs> well, the only uh, thing I can think of for a, a typewriter now is a marvelous sound effect that evokes a particular era. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That'll certainly take you back. <laughs> and, and even more so the difference between a manual typewriter, like an old Remington and uh, an IBM Selectric. Those are two very different sounds that evoke very different time periods.
Oh, quite so. The manual typewriter does give you the idea of the uh, Edward R. Murrow with his hat pushed back and a cigarette dangling from his lips, standing on the top of a roof in London and typing out his story. Although uh, Edward R. Murrow, in fact, did make some very uh, notable and uh, beautiful recordings uh, from uh, location. I'm standing on a rooftop in London is one of his uh, most famous uh, quotes that oh, uh, as as listeners to the midst of the battle that was occurring at that time during the Second yeah. War. Yeah. Wow. Sound well. Well, that's great. So, so you got into the audiobook world really early. I get in in the audiobook world in the mid eighties. So, so even even though I know that there were th- like you said there were uh, sp- there was spoken word on albums before that, but the '80s is still the way that I look at audiobooks today. That's still really really early days. Um, I I see it from the people that I've spoken with as once you get into the '90s, it's starting. There's starting to be more momentum, and I, I can't remember who it is now. In uh, I think it was in Washington. Uh, that that was doing more and more of the audiobooks. I know that it's only been in the past 10 years that it's really taken off. But back in the 90s, things were starting to move. But back in the 80s, I, I actually remember listening to audiobooks on cassette back in the 80s. And that was really the what I consider the early days. Well, Cadman was a leader in the non-music recording uh, systems. And uh, on Cadman, we found things like A Child's Christmas in Wales and other kinds of classics that uh, were recorded on disc uh, by Cadman. And for me, they were the key that opened the door to the world of audio publishing now because of the change in technology. So at that point, you were still doing, you were still on the audio engineering side. Yes, I was a recording engineer at a radio station, uh, after which um, once the idea of audio publishing became a reality, um, I began to work with a number of publishing companies and they slowly evolved the idea of building their own studios and moving from print into uh, sound, which is actually an enormous uh, transition because you're changing one medium to another. Mm. So one wants to make that change kind of transparent. Um, When you get your money's worth at a movie, for instance, you forget you're watching the movie. Mm -hmm. And the same goal pertains to audiobooks. If an audiobook really works, it'll work when you forget you're listening to it. Yeah. And that gives uh, the quality of uh, what I call transparency to the medium. So that um, with all due respect to Mr. McLuhan, the medium isn't the message. The medium should (laughs) in a way get out of the way and allow the message to pass directly from the content to the listener. And that's where the mind's eye takes over. It's, yeah, when, uh, when, when you feel like you're in the middle of it instead of it happening outside someplace. It's very immersive to yeah. listen to an audiobook. And when the audiobook works, 
then one forgets one's uh, listening to it. And that's why I'm, as a director, really quite punctilious about things like extraneous noises or words that are pronounced differently on different pages, the same word, or anything that will remind the listener that they're listening to something. Mm -hmm. If the audiobook is successful, the listener will forget that they're listening to an audiobook. Sure. Yeah. So when did you get from, when did you go from uh, being on the um, engineering side to being involved in more in the production side of whatever, whatever it was that you started with? How, how did you cross from the engineering side to the production side? It began really with my association out of radio at uh, listener-sponsored radio and into publishing. At publishing, um, my roles began to change so that eventually I was uh, made a producer. And a producer uh, in audiobooks is in charge of a vast number of things. Back in the day, it involved hiring a studio, hiring the talent. Um, uh, arranging for transportation, um, moving physical objects like sound properties into the recording studio, uh, and a wide variety of things that uh, pertain specifically to the idea that one had to be in a specific place and one had to be in a studio to have a studio. Uh, but for the transition, we end up with uh, less specificity and uh, more flexibility as mm -hmm. far as where you are, where you can be. For instance, during COVID, I directed narrators for almost uh, 18 months uh, without ever seeing them or being in the same time zone with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were able to achieve our goals uh, without uh, being physically uh, within proximity of one another. So that that's really uh, that's really interesting for somebody who's been in the industry for so long. Um, I'm kind of curious, and so we can we can go back in time in a minute. But since you mentioned that, I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on the difference. How much of an adjustment did you have to make when you started doing all of your work remotely? Um, I found that the relationship between the reader and the uh, director relaxed a great deal. Not having the person in the room seemed, at least to me, to loosen up the process huh. so that um, uh, who was recording uh, could uh, sit there in their pajamas if they wanted to. Um, where, I whereas do, you never see that in a studio. In a studio, one would <laughs> more for business. Right. So one, one would dress uh, in a less uh, relaxed way. Sure. So also being in familiar surroundings was conducive, I think, to uh, people who worked remotely. Now, of course, nowadays, many people have their own recording studios at home, have their own booths at home and are directed remotely by people who are in different time zones or uh, not uh, local to them. Um, some say that that is alienating. I find that it is a kind of warm sensation of being drawn together uh, 
in the audio world. Uh, my mind focuses completely on the sound that I'm listening to when I'm wearing earphones. I, I almost always wear earphones. And I ask the recording engineer to be my, uh, my companion. There are things I will miss uh, because uh, when one is working over Zoom, perhaps a paper sound or anything else that reminds the listener that they're listening to an audiobook might not be uh, audible to me. And so I rely heavily on the uh, attentions of the recording engineer herself or himself uh, to be my companion, my uh, co-pilot when it comes to uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, never never hurts to have another set of ears um, to hear stuff. That's really interesting to hear that it actually, to you, it actually made it more relaxed. I, I could totally see that having having done some I haven't been in a studio to do any recording in many years um, back from when I used to do more commercial type stuff. But I could completely see how as the talent it's it is definitely different being in my own booth than it ever was being in a studio with the other people around. So I, I could see how that that could be the case. I'm, I'm glad that you experienced that, that uh, that it was more comfortable and relaxed. I feel it's conducive to uh, a good performance. Um, now, a good performance uh, can be produced by someone in a studio uh, with others around, as in the classic uh, setup back in uh, the day before uh, COVID. Mm -hmm. But there's a kind of relaxation and hominess and a sense of security that people have being on their own in the studio and not being within the physical proximity or the sight lines of someone else. So yeah, that that was uh, it. I, I love the fact that you said that because that's when I'm thinking back on it. That's what I'm thinking about. People are watching me. It it you know it doesn't matter that it's all audio and that nobody's going to see you in the long run. It's that people are watching me, and uh, and so I I can totally totally see how that would make a difference. There's also a practical aspect about uh, things like lunch breaks. Lunch breaks take a lot less time mm. when you have to just <laughs> go to the kitchen and get your sandwich yeah. as opposed to three of us. That is the reader, the engineer and me going out for lunch. It'll take an hour right. and uh, we lose momentum when that happens. So the kind of unbroken thread of momentum continuity and content continuity and feeling continuity is less disrupted when the interval of a break is shorter. Yeah, that's that's funny. That's something that I would not have thought of, but uh, it makes perfect sense. Uh, it certainly is when, you know, when I'm taking a break, yep, just walk outside the door, get whatever I want because I'm in my own home. Okay, I'm back. Uh, so yeah, I, I totally can see that. Uh, well, so you went to uh, producing, which was kind of, uh, you know, wearing all the different hats. I, I A lot of times I think of producers no matter whether it's uh, audio or film or whatever it is, as kind of the, the cat herders. When did you go to, uh, when did you start directing and making that? Um, I mean, I, I know that you've done a lot of production, producing and directing. When, when did you take on your first directing only job for a specific audiobook? Well, it's hard to say specifically, but I can say that it was about five to eight years ago that um, the structure of the uh, audiobook production machinery began to shift somewhat. And uh, the compartmentalization of jobs began to 
coalesce. Um, I found that as a director, just being a director gave me a tremendous amount of latitude that uh, was limited by having to oversee a variety of different functions. And uh, this allowed me to concentrate very closely on what I was hearing and who I was working with. Um, there are some very specific things about fiction and nonfiction and uh, business books and so forth that um, have become very clear to me now uh, when I talk to actors about how to approach a job, for instance, that were less uh, apparent to me uh, during the brick and mortar phase, shall we say. Interesting. Um, in some ways, I feel personally, and this is not a universal feeling, that COVID was in a way good for the product that comes out of the industry because of the mindset of the people who are doing it, not in the same room, not in the same time zone even, mm -hmm. but uh, left alone to themselves to uh, be individually guided by their aloneness in the studio, by their uh, not being others around. I think that has a positive effect. There are many people who feel that the society of others and the camaraderie, which I do sort of miss very much because uh, this is a small industry and we all know each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the affection that we have for each other uh, is very great because it's a, it's a small industry and uh, people care about each other and know about each other. And uh, back in the days when we could have uh, uh, Halloween parties and uh, Christmas parties mm -hmm. uh, before COVID, uh, it was wonderful to see everyone to, uh, together. Um, but I believe that uh, the change over to working individually from a distance has had a positive effect on the quality of performance as uh, well as the process itself. That's great to hear. It uh, it definitely is a two-edged sword. I mean, of course, I, I'm sure that nobody would wish to uh, to go through something like COVID again. Uh, I'm sure it will happen eventually. Uh, but and they're saying probably pandemic type things are more and more likely as time goes on. But um, but at the same time, you know, these these major things cause shifts and sometimes good things can come out of those shifts. And it sounds like you've definitely found some some good points about having to go through something that was that was difficult. So uh, so that's, well, that's I, I, also, I would also add that um, the ability to work with people who are at a great distance, uh, I direct people who are all over the all over the country. And uh, that defeats the necessity for having to bring someone to a studio or back in the day, I would have to drive to Atlanta or fly to Atlanta and drive to the studio to direct the person. Mm -hmm. That's no longer necessary. And uh, extracting that part of the process relieves a tremendous amount of work and releases the ability to use that energy to focus more precisely on the job at hand. So not having to travel, um, I, I would say that the majority of the readers that I uh, work with aren't uh, nearby. Many of them are hundreds and some thousands of miles away, and in some cases uh, across the ocean. 
So wow. uh, yeah. the ability to do it digitally has opened up a vast universe of possibilities. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, that's great. So, so you started directing, and and you got more and more into directing. You've directed some pretty amazing works. Uh, I know that if I remember correctly, it was um, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire that won a Grammy. Is yes, that, am I remembering it, that correctly? You are, and uh, there was yet another Grammy that it won uh, for. Um, I can't remember exactly which title. There were seven titles, and uh, two of them were graced with the honor of being oh, I, think it, I think it was one of the deathly hallows it may well have been so i i assume that that's the jim dale version not the um stephen fry version stephen fry version is uh, the english version the right, one that right. was done um, uh, in london uh the one that we worked with was with jim dale and that yeah. was done in new york city and at that time of course uh, there was uh, no COVID. And so we all came into the studio. We found that, that Jim, if he took a 90 minute nap after lunch, produced more pages than if he didn't. However, because Harry Potter became such a valuable property, there surrounded it a kind of security scrim that meant that one couldn't carry pages home at night. Um, the entire studio was booked so that no one else could hear what was being said in it. Um, we even uh, did not use the, in speaking about it on the phone, the actual name of the books that, were, that we were working on. Uh, I think Goblet of Fire became a Helicopter Rescue 2 and uh, other, kind, funny. Uh, other sorts of uh, diversions to... Uh, keep the uh, lid on it because sure. uh, as time went on, of course, these products became more and more valuable. Yeah, bigger and bigger. Um, and there, was, there was a time when my, uh, my the beginning of the Harry Potter series is with uh, a young woman um, who is no longer with us, but uh, she was able, Kathy Hale, to call Joe Rolling up and say, hey, Joe, is it uh, Wizard Gamot or Wizard Gamot? You know, uh, by the time I get to this, which is the third book, uh, when I become the producer and director of the series, I get to send emails to the assistant, to the secretary, to Joe Rowe. <laughs> <So, laughs> yeah, her, her, speaking on the phone to Joe. Yeah, her, <laughs> her, her life definitely, definitely changed from when she started writing that series. Um, so that, that must have been a great experience. So then did you, you said that you started with the third book, and then did you produce and direct the entire rest of the series? Yes, I did. Wow. So that's, that's, that's great. Um, because I'm sure that that lent some continuity to everybody involved. Um, if the same people can be doing the same jobs throughout the rest of the series. Uh, we became a kind of a family and, uh, uh became quite close. Uh, uh, Jim and I are still good friends and uh, do talk, uh, from time to time and, uh, uh, do visit once in a while. Uh, so that the linkage between the members of the group became very close. Uh, uh, it's something that we uh, all uh, really uh, cherish now. No doubt. And the, that... thing, the thing that, that pleases uh, many of us is that um, here's something that 
others will listen to long after we have uh, gone away and that we're leaving something of value for future generations is an inestimably powerful and wonderful feeling. It is. I completely agree with that. Um, it, it, uh, it doesn't surprise me about the fact that you kind of became a little bit of a family, just just even for one series. And and it makes me think about what you said about the fact that it's a fairly small community. Uh, a lot of people know each other. Uh, you know, if you're brand new to the industry, sure, it takes a while to get to know people. But because it is relatively, uh, you know, a small niche area of the performing arts, you kind of get to know people after after a few years, maybe a few more. Um, and then there is this sort of camaraderie. And so I'm sure for something like that, that went on for many books, um, it, it just makes those bonds pretty strong. It does. They are unbreakable as a matter of fact, and they are something that I will carry with me uh, for all, all time. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, so, and you've directed books, uh, produced for a whole bunch of other very famous authors, like I mentioned at the top, Stephen King, Margaret Atwood, and, and, uh, Louis L'Amour and, and a whole host of others. Um, but tell me about some of your experiences directing, uh, what, what, what has worked really well? What, what ends up making a, an audiobook production, just kind of roll forward and everybody's happy and you love the job you're doing and you can tell that you're making a difference and everybody loves working together. I would say that it varies by the kinds of attention that we pay to the different sorts of books that we work on. Fiction is not the same as nonfiction. Nonfiction is not the same as business books. Uh, the way that one approaches them varies by the type of title. Uh, titles divide into two big categories, fiction and nonfiction. In fiction, for instance, one wants to visual, at least I uh, exhort uh, my readers, to visualize the characters in them. To read the book once, make a character pronunciation notes, of course, but also to record the voices that they'll be using. Because by the third book, you may not remember the sound of the voice of the shop owner in Diagon Alley. Yeah. And uh, many is the time Jim has turned to us or had turned to us and said, Diagon Alley, what does that person sound like? Well, what we have been doing all along is every time Jim introduces a new voice, we spike that voice. We make a recording of it and we label it so that if we want to know who Diagon Alley sounds like, uh, we And the interesting part is that once we play Jim a sample of it, it takes less than a second, just a fraction of a second. And Jim says, oh, Scottish. And he knows yeah. right away. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and he's yeah. right into it. So it, it doesn't take any study whatsoever. Uh, and the interesting thing about Jim Dale, since we're speaking on the subject of Jim Dale and Harry Potter and multiple voices, Um, Jim uses a technique that um, I find in opposition to another technique. Jim's technique is one in which every character that he plays in Harry Potter is someone he knows, someone he knew in life. So, for instance, Jim told me the story once he's standing in an elevator. This is before Harry Potter. And Jim's a tall fellow, eh, 6'1", 6'2", maybe. And um, he's going up in the elevator and he feels someone tug on his sleeve. Actually, his pant leg. 
So he looks down and there's a very compact older man, maybe Jim's hip height. And the man looks up at Jim and says, please, sir, you're standing on my foot. <laughs> this becomes Dobby the house elf. Oh, my gosh. Wow, so that's that, great. So that the Jim has forever in his mind that man's sound as Dobby the house elf. And so it takes only a second to recall it. Yeah, he knows who Dobby is because he's met Dobby. <laughs> exactly. He's heard him speak. And uh, Jim has a, a, a prodigious memory for voices. Uh, it takes, as I said, just a fraction of a second to uh, have him recall. That that sounds like um, a great thing uh, in terms of making everything work well. What about challenges, uh, directing experiences that you've had where it's been kind of a slog or it's been more difficult than you would have expected given the material? Um, you know, no names, no titles, just... I'm just wondering for my listeners who are primarily narrators who are are looking for okay what should I not do what what uh, if if I'm in an experience where I have a director and I'm recording for a big publishing house what should I not do because it will make the whole thing more difficult for everybody Let's talk about pronunciation <laughs> All right let's talk about pronunciation Sometimes folks can get, and this happens in almost every audiobook, one word will hang someone up. Um, I remember uh, a very fine reader, a young man, um, could not say the word accompaniment. It kept on coming out accompaniment, <laughs> and no amount of slowing down and repetition would do it. So it came to me to say this. This man was of a certain age, so I said to him, well, do you remember a, a song from the, from the World War II, the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B? And uh, yes, he did. And I said, well, uh, can you say Company B? And he says, yeah, I can say Company B. And so I say to him, do you know what a Company B meant? And he said, yeah, I know what a Company B meant. And I said, do you know what a company meant? And he said, yeah, I know what a company meant. Oh, accompaniment. <laughs> what a great there trick. It is. <laughs> then there's backwards syllabification. This is weird. I don't know why this works. I cannot, I have no explanation for it whatsoever. But if someone stumbles over, let's, I don't know, I'll choose a word, uh, 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 anti-disqualification. Okay, there's a big word. Okay. And the person can't say it. They just can't say it. I have found a foolproof technique, and it is this. Repeat after me, I say. Shun. They say shun. Kation. Kation. Fication. Fication. Lification. Lification. Qualification. Disqualification. Anti-disqualification. Saying it syllable backwards somehow allows the list the reader to build, to build the word that is a fantastic um, trick i will definitely try that because we all it have works. all, all of us no narrators idea. 
Yeah, all all of us narrators have those bugaboos where it's like, God damn it, I know this word. I've said this word, you know, a hundred times in my own life. Why can't I say it now? Um, say it so, syllable backwards, and yeah. you will be able to pronounce it. I um, I will try that at some point. That's great. Um, the other uh, thing that is important is to uh, establish the fact that we are making an entertainment product. And the thing about an entertainment product is that it's best when, and stop me if I've mentioned this already, when you forget that you're listening. So that the idea is to get out of the way as a narrator mm. and allow the content because we're changing media here. We're going from something that is silently read to yourself to something that is silently, that is uh, audibly spoken out. And so in changing the medium, uh, we have a kind of a challenge. Um, this means uh, for us that, uh, ooh, how shall I put this? In fiction, for instance, we talked about visualizing the book. Mm -hmm. We talked about visualizing the characters in it. But let's talk about nonfiction for a second. Here's, oh, I don't know, a book by uh, Barry Lopez, Arctic Dreams. The entire thing is nonfiction. And it is, as I give the reader instruction, the land is alive. The places that are spoken about is alive. Each part of the physical description is a character major and minor players. Look at the landscape in your mind's eye, feel it. And your enthusiasm for the topic, let that inform your performance. The pace will vary with sections and content and so forth, but it becomes, I would say, sort of a natural phenomenon among professional readers to slip into that kind of content uh, shape. And uh, it produces uh, what for me is what I call a transparent product, one in which you're not even really aware of the reader herself, mm -hmm. but I, you are inside the story. Yeah, I've, I actually remember seeing a narrator comment on that at one point about the fact that um, somebody left a review or or they heard from somebody I, I don't remember what it was exactly but it was that um they they didn't even um you know the the narrator didn't even really register to them because they they were so into the story and he thought you know what some people might take that as some kind of a, a slam i view it as the best compliment i can get is that you're you're bringing them into the story and they don't even realize that you're there um, I, I love that idea of no matter whether it's, you know, you're visualizing the setting or the characters of a fiction book, or whether you're visualizing what it is that is happening in this nonfiction book, that visualization thing is the common thing and uh, common theme. And I, I love that idea. I will, I, I've, I narrate, uh, I, I would guess at this point, uh, more than half nonfiction and uh, I, I will definitely keep that in mind for the next nonfiction that I do. Um, in business books, we wish to impart and share rather than read. 
mm-hmm. keeping that in mind. So that I always like to suggest that you're telling the story to one person, somebody you know. If the text is dense, control your speed, let the ideas sink in, be present, be interested in the topic, get interested in the topic, read it. For instance, don't let lists slip by, but make something, even if it's small, make something of each part of the list so that there isn't a sameness or a kind of numbing quality because Mm -hmm. some uh, business books do contain lists of ideas or propositions and modulate them. Don't let them fall into a pattern. A good way of testing this uh, at home, of course, is to record yourself and read and listen to see if you have unconscious patterns. Some people will have, uh, I won't say verbal tics, but they do have rhythms that repeat. Those are to be uh, made aware of so that the rhythm matches content rather than matches the way in which the narrator normally would read without direction. Uh, Those parts I think are extremely uh, prescient. Uh, These are um, nuanced things, very highly nuanced, uh, but they make an enormous difference when the listener is overtaken by the content and has forgotten that they're listening. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, I Just thinking back on some of the business books that I've done, hell yeah, there's a, a lot of list type things in there. Bullet points, you know, you've got a, an entire page that has bullet points that are each one or two lines long. And it can get difficult as, as you go through to, uh, by the end of it, not be feeling like it's just okay here's another one here's another one here's another one so i i like that um you know well each, make, make each one individual that is exactly what i'm saying that each bullet point contains different information mm-hmm. therefore the difference of the information is up to you to modulate it so that it doesn't become numbing it doesn't become a laundry list right. but it becomes a living thing And that is uh, the road to success with nonfiction, especially in business books, is to take the content and bring it alive because it's alive with what? Information. And that is something that is controllable by the reader. Modulation, tone of voice, speed, all of this very nuanced, very, very slight. This is not something that one uh, administers with a a wide sweep of the hand, but the nuance of it makes the difference between a snoozer and one that you can't put down. I mean, ideally, and everybody knows this old one um, about the uh, business of sitting in the car and waiting for the chapter to end. Uh, so mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> one wants to have that quality even with a business book. Right. And if the book is read in a way that gives value to each part of its contents, um, it's irresistible. It's interesting. It's commanding. And it's penetrating. Um, audio is, I think, one of the most powerful media. 
and it a lot it because of what it does with the imagination and the person who is the narrator in control of the imagination of the listener uh has the reins uh, uh in their hands and uh, skill is what is required to do it and that uh, sometimes asks uh, the director to become a more active participant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so since you've been speaking about nonfiction, I mean, you know, we started out with talking about Harry Potter and all these other fiction authors, but I know that you've also done quite a bit and you've narrated some nonfiction as well. What what would you say your the breakdown is of what you direct in terms of fiction versus nonfiction? And I and I realize that within nonfiction, there's uh, you know a lot of variation. Like you say, business is not the same as this type of nonfiction or that type. But but between fiction and nonfiction, what's the breakdown? Well, fiction, of course, involves characters, and uh, characters uh, can be portrayed in two ways. Um, Let's take the example, if you'll forgive me, of returning to a character-rich book, uh, Harry Potter, in which 138 different characters are uh, separately voiced, as in the example of Dobby the House Elf. Mm -hmm. That's one way of doing it. But another way of doing it is to use a device that fills the the character's voice with feel. It's called intention. And it's the feelings and thoughts of the person. So for instance, the great Phil Bosco, um, one of the finest uh, audiobook readers in the business, uh, uh, used to never change his voice, but because he used intention, you always knew who was speaking. Mm-hmm. He filled each one of his recitations with the thoughts and feelings of the person who was speaking at that moment. So there was uh, never any issue about who was speaking. Although I will say one of the most common questions a director gets when you're going along and there are no attributions on the page of, wait a minute, who's speaking? (laughs) I I have that trouble myself without a director. (laughs) Of course, of course. course. It's endemic to the process, especially if uh, the... uh, author is uh, stingy with attributions mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, of course is dependent on the style of writing yeah i'm i'm just wondering in terms of the directing that you're doing at this point how much of it is fiction and how much of it is nonfiction? i've been doing i would say uh, mostly nonfiction over the last few titles although the last title i did was a robert b parker and that, of course, is a rip-roaring a detective story. And uh, the uh, stock characters, that uh, the characters that return, uh, Jesse Stone and uh, the gang, um, these are all uh, set in the voices of the uh, traditional reader, of the legacy reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't know if that answers your question or if it addresses no, no. it. So it sounds like you're, you know, there's a slight, um, uh, not preference, but I'm, I'm, I can't think of the right word. Too much uh, tuxedo number two, I guess. But um, it, it sounds like you're doing a little bit more nonfiction than fiction at this point. But there's still a good mix. There is, in fact, yes, a very good mix. Uh, I have coming up um, a book of poetry, 
um, a short nonfiction book, uh, a how-to, and a one that I haven't had, I just got yesterday that I haven't had a chance to look at, which is fiction. So um, I will be making, I, I have a grid that I use. I have a a, a pattern of, uh, of plugins that um, allows me to, I, I set up the folders and I just start pl- the folders that read things like script, uh, payments, uh, reader, uh, contacts, uh, pronunciations, uh, all kinds of different uh, categories of information which are ready to be filled in. Mm-hmm. And as the information flows towards me, I begin to accumulate them into a single box so that when it comes time to do the work, all I need to do is dial up that one box and there's all the information I need for the execution of the project because um, I have uh, studied the uh, internal workings of it, but there's a lot of questions. Uh, Who uh, who is where? Uh, How do you contact this person? Um, If this fails, what do we do? (laughs) People don't realize how important it is to exchange phone numbers sometimes. (laughs) Zoom will fail. Yeah. How, how do I get a hold of them? Yeah, definitely. Yes. So one of the first things I do is make sure that I've exchanged phone numbers with the people I'm working with, because uh, sometimes they will go on reading page after page and you will uh, have been abandoned by. <laughs> the technology gods will have struck you down. Do you do you have a preference? Is there something that you enjoy working on more than other things? I mean, it sounds like very broad range of different types of books that you have have produced and directed is there something that that makes you think oh i'm gonna love this because it's you know genre I'm x a, or whatever it is i'm a big fan of historical fiction ah. but above and that's, all that's that's what you've mostly narrated too correct yes i would say uh, historical fiction louis lamour is a good example of that uh ah. um but i will also say that um the process itself is to me so intriguing, so involving, so elegant that the doing of it is as much pleasure as the content that the doing is producing. That's so just, great to hear. I love that. I just love the act of doing this kind of work. There's a neatness to it, a cleanliness to it, and it involves words. And I am a word person. Yeah. Uh, in my in my my spare time, I'll I'll, I'll read David Crystal and, and and Kevin Stroud. I'll read the history of English. I'll, I'll study the. Uh, I'm a I'm a nut for words. So uh, I like etymology, and I read a lot of etymology. Mm. I like the history of English. Um, uh, I'm very interested in everyday life in ancient times and read a great deal about that. Uh, crossword puzzles, uh, word origins, linguistics itself, history in general. Uh, there's a wonderful BBC uh, book uh, by David Hendy about the BBC, which kind of overlaps a little bit in uh, speech with uh, what we're talking about here. Do you listen to uh, Away With Words by any chance? Um, no, I don't have a, a, a knowledge of that one, but, uh, oh, it's the, great. The, radio, the radio, the, uh, the podcast. Yes. Yeah. I have, 
Yes, there's the two of them away with yeah. words. Yeah, yes. I, I can't okay. think of the names right. And Martha and uh, I, I can't remember his name, but um, it 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 is really a fun fun show about phrases that a very small group of people will know and they'll know really well, but nobody else does. They'll, they'll use them and they'll say, what the hell are you talking about? And so they'll go into the the history of where that came from and how it's changed over the years. It's, it's really fascinating. I don't listen to it as often as I, as I'd like to, but uh, it, it really is. They really do have some fun, fascinating stuff. I would highly recommend to you if you are interested and you obviously are, uh, to the history of the English language podcast. You must use that last word. This okay. is Kevin Brown's 155 plus series on the history of English. It is compelling, erudite, funny, deep, um, uh, crosses over uh, uh, from uh, history into history of language, history of pronunciation. That's great. Uh, I'll look it up because I, I like you, I love etymology. I, when I hear a word and I find out, oh, that's related to this one. Well, wait a minute. How did that happen? And and so I'll look it up just so that I can look up the etymology. Kevin Stroud is, <laughs> is nonpareil. You will be uh, absolutely thrilled at his history of the English language podcast. It is brilliant. And I cannot recommend it more highly. That's great. Uh, I'll, also, I'll definitely look it up. All right. Well, uh, David, this this has been great. I, I love hearing these these uh, stories and these ideas uh, from somebody who has been involved in this industry for so long. You you know, clearly you're doing a lot. You're still doing a lot of work after a long time in the industry. What do you do when you're not producing and directing audiobooks? Aha. Uh -huh. What do I do in my free time? Well, let's do see. you have any free time? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, we, I make sure to have free time uh, so that I can spend time with my uh, with my wife. And what we like to do is, well, for instance, we do a lot of walking. We do a oh, tremendous amount of walking. We walk New York City all the time. We are always looking for lost parts of the city, tiny mm. fragments of the street grid. We know uh, many different sections of the city and watch as they change. Um, typically, we'll take a five-mile uh, five walk um, just about every day. And we start early in the morning, often sometimes before light. And uh, that's uh, something that uh, we probably couldn't live without. Um, um, I'm also uh, uh, very interested in uh, uh, etymology, as I said, archaeology, prehistoric archaeology, everyday life in ancient times fascinates me. Um, uh, uh, a nut for crossword puzzles, as you might imagine. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt, yeah. <laughs> History in general is uh, fascinating to me. Uh, and uh, the fact that Everything changes, that it is process all the time, that nothing stays the same. Mm -hmm. Try talking to a 15-year-old sometime. You'll find <laughs> that their language is very different than the language that you use. And that is because of the evolution of the language itself. These things change through time. And I find that absolutely compelling and fascinating. Um, so those are these... I guess it is process that interests me most. The idea that things are constantly changing. And as they change, 
noticing the changes brings depth and quality to the experience of feeling it. And that, uh, funny, funnily enough, as uh, I talk about these long walks that my wife and I take, they are nonstop yak fests. We don't stop <laughs> walking from the moment we get off the doorstep to the moment we come back and take our sneakers off. That's and great. It's, it's usually it's usually about ideas that come about that are stimulated by our surroundings. Um, we tend to uh, shut out uh, the world events and turn our lights inward. And often they involve um, the working of ideas within ourselves and concepts that we have and what ifs and suppose this and uh, what if that were to happen, then what would the consequence of this be? And those conversations are indefinitely long. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. They sound great, though. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was, you know, how how life was at a specific point. I I love thinking about stuff like that. The one time that I was in London and went to the tower, I was, you know, it, it's a fascinating place. You know, oh, this is this tower and this is that tower and here's this room and that room. But at one point I was just in some basic area and I, I just stopped for a second and I thought somebody lived in this room. This was their home. This was, this is not the kind of home that I have. This is like, you know, block walls and nothing basically for a bed. And, and I'm always fascinated to think back and to think a hundred years ago, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, what was life like for the people who were right there in the moment? So well, I consider, consider this. Consider the idea that until about 150 years ago, the world was lit entirely by fire. Mm -hmm. That yeah. human beings of our species, Homo sapiens sapiens, have been around about 200,000 years. And until about 150 years ago, entirely by fire. Yeah, I, I, it is. It's, it's fascinating. So I, I love to think about those things. It's like you think... Well, we're we're people, right? So people a thousand years ago, they were still people. Yeah, but the environment was so different. <laughs> well, consider this. Consider, for instance, the darkness of the night, such that your hand, so dark it is outside that your hand disappears at arm's length. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, well, you're... <laughs> An ancient writer, a sixth century guy, a guy named Bede, the Venerable Bede, describes the life of a person as this. Imagine a longhouse, and within this longhouse, there are separate household fires, and at the end of one longhouse is a window. A bird flies from the impenetrable, inky darkness of the outside into the warmth and light of the inside, flying through and then again out into the deep purple darkness of night and such is the life of a human being <laughs> so this ephemerality of it gives us a quality of appreciation that is the very essence of what matters in fact uh, as time goes on one begins to think that the things that matter most are the things that are the least corporeal, the least tangible. 
And here we are with words, totally intangible. And so they bring us a quality that is profound, that is hardwired into us. We have been telling stories to each other since we've been able to speak. And it's only lately, only within the last few hundred, uh, a few thousand years, well, let us look at 4,500 years for Sumerians and cuneiform, cuneiform. But that's a short period of time considering 200,000 years of people, yet yeah. we've been telling each other stories and uh, singing the praises of this and that for as long as we've had the power of speech. So stories are part of our basic fabric. Stories are woven into the essence of what it is to be human. So that stories, whether they be via an audiobook or whether they come from your mind or hearing someone recited in a, in a hall before the time of recording or listening to a recording, all of these things touch the very basic web of what makes us human. Store, without stories, there would be no humanity. And therein, uh, audio publishing uh, has its finger, but its finger is short compared to the length of time that there have been people telling stories. And that is deeply embedded in what we find valuable and attractive and, well, entertaining, but essential. Without stories, there would be nothing. If one thinks about politics, even it's whose story is more believable. They're all, <laughs> it's all stories. Yeah. And we are involved in an industry in which stories are the stock and trade, but that's the start, not the end. It is in fact, the depth of uh, humanity where stories come from. And they've been with us since we've been people. What a what a beautiful thought for uh, for a podcast about audiobook production. Super, uh, I, super important I, I, stuff there. I didn't have a lot of practical advice for folks. I do I, I do have practical advice, but I didn't want to spend our time on it because I think that many very fine practitioners of this craft uh, are more articulate than I in uh, expressing the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, no, but, that's fine. I, I think that you had some great practical advice uh, in, in the middle there about uh, what, what to think about when you are, um, uh, you know, maybe it's more technical than performance, but still it affects the performance about pronunciation and, and things of that nature. So uh, I, I, I think that's fine. I uh, couldn't agree more. And I, I think that uh, performance is in, informed by the immersion of the person in the text itself. Uh, I have to say, and, and I say this with all honesty, that whether it is an exalted or a modest production, I will give it the same degree of attention because it's words, words. And that is the key to humanity. That's that's fantastic. So, David, I know that you work for the major publishers. Do you? I, I have heard of some directors who will uh, a, a narrator who's doing an indie production will hire a director for like an hour, and they will they will direct them for like the first chapter or the first two chapters or whatever it is of a book, and then that performer can then 
basically infer from the direction about how they should move forward for the rest of the book. Do you do anything like that? Or is it really strictly just directing entire books? Um, as far as I'm concerned, I can't do the job unless I do it from the beginning to the very end. Okay. Um, right. I, I have to uh, be there for the entire time. Um, I, it makes for me, uh, and uh, I say this only for me, for it may be true for others, but it is not true for me, that unless I am there for the entire span of the uh, project, um, I have not done my job. Um, okay. And uh, uh, everybody's human, you know, people wander off sometimes. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and the, this, this is why... Um, <laughs> when people make mistakes and they become apologetic about making mistakes, um, I will often say to them, you know, um, if you didn't make mistakes, the children of the editors who correct these mistakes would starve. So you <laughs> are providing a service to a segment of an industry by making these mistakes. Do that's, not be embarrassed. People that's do great. Embarrassed. I I, I will feel much happier the next time I get a pickup package with a lot of mistakes in it. <laughs> well, no one likes to see a big pickup package, but what one does <laughs> like to see is a burnished, beautiful, completed, uh, repaired, and glossy, seamless, gorgeous recitation mm. that penetrates to the soul of the person listening to it um it takes work but if the it, but we don't want to see how the we don't want to see how the sausage is made we just right, want to right. it <laughs> exactly yeah no it makes makes perfect sense david this has been great thank you so much for taking your time to do this uh where can people find you if they want to find you online um, they can find me. Um, oh gosh, I'll just give you my uh, email address. It is sure. a Drapco, D R A P C O, David Rapkin Audio Production Company, Drapco at AOL.com. That's right. the quickest way to get in touch with me. And I'll, oh, I always respond to anyone who writes to me. So be assured that if you drop me a line, I'll return it. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate your time for coming into the speakeasy. I hope the uh, the Agua Libre was good. Ah, it was excellent. Most refreshing. <laughs> Abundantly sourced, too, so I have no fear of running out. <laughs> fantastic. I, I will say that the Tuxedo Number 2 is... It's not the kind of thing that I'm going to have every day, but it is definitely a nice alternative to a standard martini. So I would recommend you try one of those. If if you are a martini fan, as I am, um, I, I am I would, indeed. Then I then I would recommend trying a tuxedo number two at some point. I will just tell you this: that it is said that during the 1920s, the drink was named martini because the small arms maker in Italy, Martini. Uh, produced a pistol that was said to have a kick like that drink. <laughs> That's great. Uh, and and I will definitely try the uh, double entendre. I, I will uh, look it up, see what I can find out about it. And uh, if I can't find anything, I will just uh, use what you told me and concoct my own and see how it goes. <laughs> well, I, 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 am, I am familiar with Myers rum and it is a good rum. I Rum is one of those categories that... Um, too many people drink crappy rum and uh there are some good rums out there myers would be one of them 
Yes, dark rum seems uh, always to have been my lifelong favorite. Um, it, it, it has its arms around caramel and mm-hmm. other kinds of, of sugar products. And I'm unabashedly a sugar fan. Watch uh, <laughs> myself with it. Uh, and Myers rum is one of the most exquisite expressions of sugar that I can think of. <laughs> well, if you do like a sweeter rum, have you ever tried or found a caniche? No, I have heard of it, but is it a light or a dark rum? They have, uh, actually, I don't even know if they have a light rum. I They have several different types of uh, dark rum. I typically get the XO. They also have uh, a higher one. It's Presidente or uh, Especial or something. I, I don't remember, but um, the XO is the one that I like. So I would recommend trying that one if you do like a good rum. I, I don't get a chance to talk about rum with a lot of people because it's not something that a lot of people drink much of. But uh, if you're a rum fan, I would try Caniche XO. And well, I don't even have, know if I'm saying it correctly. It might be Caniche or Caniche or my, I don't know. You have my email. Send me the uh, information. I, I will. This is clearly something that is of importance to me. So I would very much <laughs> like to know about it. <laughs> I, I will do that. I will do that. All right. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for coming into the Speakeasy. I appreciate your time. Uh, well, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to David Rapkin for coming in. I loved hearing about his experiences producing and directing audiobooks, and I hope you did too. As always, you can find the audiobook speakeasy on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and all the usual apps. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please take a few minutes to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Special thanks this week to Dean Destoli for making a donation via PayPal. I'm glad you're enjoying the show, Dean. Many thanks for helping me keep the lights on here in the Speakeasy. Until we see you here in the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers!